we all make mistakes, decisions that we regret, things we'd like to do over, like not buying Bitcoin when you first heard about it at $1. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. At times, therapy has helped me and my loved ones in many ways. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. With the right guide, you can discover effective strategies to minimize distractions and truly connect with your needs, setting the stage for a more balanced life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched up with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge take a moment visit betterhelp.com slash gold today to get 10 percent off your first month that's betterhelp help.com slash gold in my early days i faced a pivotal moment in my career instead of following the herd into traditional finance i charted my own course despite skepticism i founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility through perseverance i established myself as a leading voice in finance proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed to get what you want sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail that's what harry's did seeing people tricked by expensive razors harry's took a stand Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harris.com slash gold for a $3 trial set. The Peter Schiff Show. After yesterday's, I think, 550-point drop in the Dow, the market bounced back a bit today. I think at one point earlier in the day, the Dow managed a gain of over 200 points, but it could not hold on to that gain It closed down just under one point. Very weak technical action for today's uh, pre-Thanksgiving bounce. Normally, the markets are up on the day before Thanksgiving, and in general, they were. The other indexes all managed to close in the black, although considerably off their intraday highs. The uh, XRT, which is an index of retailers, I talked about that on this podcast before, it snapped an eight-day losing streak. More uh, bad news came out uh, from retailers yesterday. That was part of the reason that you saw the big sell-off in the Dow, although that was the excuse. I don't think the market needs a reason to go down. It's a bear market, and that's what bear markets do. They go down. Of course, people who don't know that you're in a bear market, well, they make excuses to try to rationalize why the market is going down because they don't want to admit uh, that they are, in fact, in a bear market. Everything kind of bounced today, though. I guess dead cat bounces all around. Even Bitcoin managed a rally today. In fact, yesterday, Bitcoin got as low as 4,050, at least on the the website that I look at. So it held 4,000. Now, of course, you've got people saying, aha, 4,000 is the bottom. 
I doubt it. I mean, it makes sense that there'd be some support at a round number. Uh, People would start to buy, uh, but I doubt that that's the low. It could be a short-term low, although it may not last more than a day or two, given the momentum in this decline. But we did get a bounce all the way back up above 4,600, so about a 600-point bounce off the 4,000 level. As I am recording this, we're back down around 4,400, so still a bit above the low, but not nearly as high as as we got. You know, one of the rumors, I think, that helped fuel the rally, and it started overseas. In fact, overseas stocks had a much bigger uh, gain uh, today than the Dow. Gold stocks had a pretty good gain, up 2.5-3% on the indexes. There were some gold stocks that were up 3-4%, surrendering some of their gains on the day. Gold itself only up 4 bucks. It closed at 12.25. You know, that's despite some very weak economic data that came out today that I'm going to get to. The dollar, again, despite that weak data, only drifted lower a little, uh, not even surrendering uh, much of yesterday's gain. Oil did manage to get a buck back. It rallied back to uh, 54 and a half, but still a very low uh, price for oil relative to where it was six weeks ago. Uh, But one of the rumors that uh, helped fuel the market was that the Federal Reserve would uh, pause in its hiking in the spring. So the December rate hike would still go as scheduled and that maybe March wouldn't come, right? Because March would be spring. So meaning that maybe December will be the rate hike or the last hike and they will uh, not hike in March. But of course, uh, the Fed is still indicating that we're going to get two or three rate hikes next year. I'm not exactly sure how the rumor started. Maybe there was an interview with one Fed guy, uh, but that rumor was out there. But of course, the bond market was actually down today. Rates backed up. So even the idea that the Fed was going to stop hiking uh, did not help the bond market. And that makes sense because if all the Fed does is pause in its rate hikes, but if it continues with quantitative tightening, right, if it keeps on you know, letting its balance sheet shrink, well, even if it stops raising short rates, long-term rates are going to keep going up because the Fed doesn't control that. And if they're not in the market buying the long bond, in fact, if they are adding to the supply, if they are selling long bonds, just like the Treasury or any bonds, whatever, longer, longer maturities, that is going to put downward pressure on bonds and rates are going to continue to rise. And of course, if the Fed pauses on their rate hikes, that is an inflationary uh, move. That is uh, an easing of monetary policy. If they're not going to hike rates, then there's more inflation and higher inflation is bad for bonds because, you know, higher inflation is like kryptonite to bonds, right? To Superman, because bonds, the value is eroded away over time. So the more inflation there is, the more interest that you need to be paid to compensate you for the purchasing power that you lose to inflation and for the taxes, because a lot of people, you have to pay income taxes on the nominal rate. So not only do you have to have an increase in the nominal rate high enough to compensate you for inflation, but also for the taxes that you pay on that higher rate so that after tax, you can stay ahead of inflation because it's not, you know, what you're paid, it's what you keep. And if you're not keeping a yield that's above the rate of inflation, well, then then you're losing and people aren't making loans to lose. Uh, they need to have some positive uh, return, at least when private people are buying. I mean, when central banks are buying, I guess they don't give 
give a damn because it's not really their money or they just created out of thin air. But real investors want a return. So if the Fed is going to stop hiking rates and allow more inflation, well, then long-term rates are going to rise more. The only way the Fed can stop the long-term rates from going up is to get into the market and manipulate the market and do more quantitative easing. They're going to have to you know, admit that they're not going to shrink their balance sheet, that their balance sheet is going to grow, and they're going to create more money, and they're going to buy more bonds to stop bond prices from falling. But of course, if they do that, that's even more inflationary because now they're creating even more dollars to buy up these bonds, and that's going to force up interest rates on all the bonds that the Fed isn't buying. So uh, state bonds, the muni bonds will go up, corporate bonds will go up. And that's going to be a big problem for the economy because that means the spreads are blowing out between all the other bonds and treasuries. And that's going to create a huge problem for the issuers of this debt. Uh, companies, you know, I, I was listening today that a statistic that better than 40% of the S&P 500 companies have issued floating rate debt. And so that debt is going to go up, become more and more expensive uh, as interest rates rise. Of course, a lot of the companies have issued debt. They're barely investment grade. Maybe they're triple B uh, plus or they're on the, you know, the edge of investment grade. And as the economy weakens and their you know, credit costs go up, a lot of these uh, bonds are going to get downgraded. They'll no longer be investment grade. They'll be junk, uh, which means a lot of uh, funds that own them that are not allowed to own anything below investment grade will be forced to sell them. So the Fed is going to create all kinds of problems uh, if the bond market starts to collapse because interest rates are rising due to more inflation. Of course, the only way the Fed can stop that from happening is to start buying all the bonds, not just the treasuries or the mortgage bonds, but muni bonds and corporate bonds. But of course, to do that, they have to create massive inflation if they're monetizing everything and the price of gold would skyrocket. Of course, nobody is worried about that happening yet because the price of gold is barely going up. The interesting thing, though, at least, is it's not going down. Remember, when the financial crisis started in 2008 and the stock market was falling, the price of gold actually went down. You know, the dollar had a much bigger rise back then than it's doing now. I mean, the dollar is barely going up and the bond market is not catching much of a bid either. In fact, what a lot of people just don't get as they're talking about how this is just a healthy correction rather than a, a, a bear market is they don't understand what's going on right? because they, they don't understand that we are now about to finish the financial crisis that started in 2008. We are now going to finish the Great Recession that started in 2007 that was interrupted by the Fed. That's all they did. They didn't solve anything. They simply interrupted the recession and interrupted the crisis, and they bought us 10 years of phony prosperity. But now that that's wearing off, right now that all of the false wealth that they created with their monetary policy and their QE programs, now that that's all evaporating, we find ourselves into an even bigger hole. Because the last 10 years, we've been digging ourselves into a deeper economic hole. Because the Fed uh, delayed the day of reckoning, we didn't have to deal with our problems. So we made the problems bigger. We didn't have to pay off our debt. So we took on more debt. The economy is even more screwed up, much more screwed up today. So now as we resume the financial crisis and resume the Great Recession, we're resuming it in a much weaker position. So that means the, the, the final half or whatever it's going to be, the rest of the crisis is going to be much worse than the rest of the crisis would have been had we simply you know, bitten the bullet and, and dealt with the problems without interrupting it. But instead, we actually interrupted the market's attempt to cure 
the economy, and so the economy got much sicker, and now it's going to be much more painful uh, to even administer the cure if we, we even try. One of the economic uh, numbers that came out today that really should have produced a bigger reaction in the currency market was the durable goods orders for October. We got that report. They were looking for a drop of 2.5%. And we got a drop, except it was almost twice as large, minus 4.4%. A lot of that was due to a big decline in military spending. But what was also interesting is the prior month, which was initially reported as plus 0.8, that was revised to minus 0.1. So we got negative number in September and then a bigger negative number in October. But even if you look at it, X transportation, they were looking for up 0.4. We only got up 0.1, but making it worse, the up 0.1 we got for September, now it's revised to down 0.6. And on the core capital goods number, they were looking for a positive 0.3. We got zero, a goose egg. And for the prior month, which was originally reported as down 0.1, they revised it to down 0.5. So that is a very weak uh, number all along. This is consistent with a weakening economy, with an economy moving into recession, not with an economic boon that's going to go on indefinitely. Like Larry Kudlow said, he came out and said that the the, the economic boom is going to continue indefinitely, uh, that there's no end in sight. I mean, this guy is as blind as Mr. Magoo. What do you mean there's no end in sight? I mean, it's already over. And first of all, it's not even a boom. It's a bubble. And that bubble has already popped. But of course, Larry Kudlow has a horrible track record of understanding uh, bubbles. I mean, he was almost as optimistic on the economy now uh, back in 2006, 2007. I know that because I used to go on his show. And, you know, he was the greatest story never told. Uh, it was the Goldilocks economy. Nobody appreciated how great the economy was under George Bush with the, the supply side tax cuts and his buddies, you know, Art Laffer. And, you know, everybody was so excited about this booming economy. And it was a bubble that had already bust and Cudlow was clueless. Well, now, you know, he's been appointed to the chief economist, right? He works at the White House, but it's not like he knows any more than he knew then. I mean, he didn't study economics. He didn't he didn't learn anything that he didn't already know. He's the same guy, except now he's actually officially part of the administration. So if he was so bullish on the economy because he's a partisan Republican, remember, he worked for Ronald Reagan. If he was so bullish just as a commentator on CNBC, I mean, obviously, he's stepping it up uh, now that he's, uh, you know, officially part of the administration and his job really is cheerleader. Again, that's why Trump hired him uh, so that he can, you know, cheerlead uh, for the Trump economy. He could be an official, uh, you know, touter. And so he's talking about how great everything is. But again, this is an even bigger bubble than the one that he was blindsided by in, in 2008. And so, you know, why would he have any more credibility now? In fact, he should have less because he was so wrong before, you know, people should be very skeptical of what he has to say. Now, we also got the weekly jobless claims that normally come out on Thursday, but because the market is closed tomorrow for Thanksgiving, and by the way, I wish all of my listeners a a happy uh, Thanksgiving. Oh, and by the way, you know, when you're around the Thanksgiving table and you're talking to your friends and your family members, talk to them about the show. 
the Peter Schiff Show, the podcast, we got to increase the number of people that listen. We know we got a lot of uh, people listening to the podcast I did on Monday. So that was great. It was a lot of people, I think, more than normal. Uh, so that's good. Maybe it's uh, you know showing that it's growing. But I need to get more listeners. I mean, I want my message to get out there because I'm not really, you know, being covered by the mainstream media anymore like I was before 2008. So the only way most people are going to get my perspective is right from the horse's mouth uh, by listening to my podcast. So uh, do me a favor or do yourself a favor and your country a favor. Uh, get people to tune in, tell people about the podcast. Remember, we've almost gotten now, I think we're one or two shy of 2,000 reviews on iTunes, although maybe we picked them up uh, since I checked because I looked at it earlier today. But if you haven't reviewed this on iTunes, just go ahead and do that or write a review. But tell people uh, to to listen. And of course, a lot of people email me and they're they wanting me to do more podcasts, you know, more frequent podcasts. Well, if you want me to do more podcasts, help me get more people to listen to the podcast because a lot of my listeners now, you know, I'm, I'm preaching to the choir and that's fine. I mean, I'm happy to do that. I'm glad I've got a choir, but I like a bigger congregation so I can convert more people, right? So uh, help me grow that. And then if enough people are listening, well, that'll motivate me to put out more content because I know the content uh, will be uh, reaching more people. But let me get back to uh, the jobless claims that were released a day early. And I think if you look at these numbers, I think there's a good sign here that we are bottoming out in claims, that claims are going to be headed higher. I mean, the original report for last week was 216,000 claims, and they revised it up to 221. Uh, the consensus for this most recent week was 215, uh, and we actually got 224,000. So the numbers are moving up, and in fact, the four-week moving average uh, from the prior month was revised up from 115.25 to 216.50. And the moving average moved up again this week to 218.5. So it looks to me like we are getting um, a a move up. Uh, The increase of 2,000 claims the prior week was increased to up 7,000 claims. And the new week came out at plus 3,000. And also, you know, look at the leading economic indicators. I mean, this matched consensus, but it was just 0.1. Right. Last month, the leading economic indicators were 0.6. This month, they're just 0.1. That is a very big decline in the forward-looking indicators. And so that would show that the economy is indeed slowing down. In fact, the Atlanta Fed acknowledged a little bit of the slowdown. I think it was yesterday. They lowered their forecast for Q4 from 2.8% to 2.5%. Now, 2.5 is the lowest number the Atlanta Fed has had since they first uh, started forecasting for Q4. But to me, I still think that's overly optimistic. I mean, maybe not quite as overly optimistic as Tom Lee, right, uh, reducing his year-end Bitcoin target from 25,000 to 15,000. I mean, that's still wildly optimistic when we're barely holding on to 4,000. You know, I saw Tom Lee interviewed on CNBC and they brought this forecast up. And if you listen to or look at that interview and it's up on YouTube, you can find it just do a CNBC Tom Lee. And I mean, that guy's got the worst body language. I kind of felt sorry for the guy. I mean, he's almost, you know, he's really in a spot, but you know, the CNBC person, I forget who was interviewing. I mean, went easy on him. And they really, I mean, if that was me, again, if I had this kind of forecast for gold, I mean, they would let me have it. Uh, And so they're not nearly being as hard on this guy because this guy has been a cheerleader urging CNBC viewers all the way down from the very peak 
to uh, to buy into uh, into Bitcoin. But to me, I mean, it really looks like he knows that, you know, he's kind of screwed here and his body language really showed that. But, you know, they keep bringing on these experts, right? CNBC brings on a crypto expert and they want to ask the expert his opinion on, you know, why the market is dropping or, uh, you know, is this a bottom, right? And first of all, why are these guys experts? They're experts because they work in the crypto industry. They've started a crypto company. They manage a crypto fund. And so therefore they're experts. They're not experts. They're just believers. They're just people that are so, you know, uh, taken by Bitcoin. They are all in, right? They believe it's the future. They believe in it so much that they're in a crypto business, right? They're not just an investor. They've invested their whole life in it, right? That this is their job, right? And so obviously they're just not experts. This this is their life. They, they, they have huge bets. They are emotionally and financially committed to Bitcoin. So they're not experts. So you bring these guys on and what are they going to say? Oh, you know, yeah, it's the bottom or it's close to the bottom. You got to buy. Look, if these guys knew why it was falling, they would have told people to sell a long time ago. In fact, I've never seen anybody in crypto come out and say, take profits, sell. Because they can't. Because when you're kind of promoting what is, in effect, a Ponzi scheme, a pyramid, you need people to keep on buying. The minute anyone tries to sell, the market implodes. So these guys go on CNBC not to, you know, tell people that, you know, yeah, the market's going to keep falling. I think you should sell. That's the last thing they're going to say. They're on there to try to encourage people to buy or try to convince people not to sell. That's why as Tom Lee's got a you know 15,000 price target for Bitcoin in the next six weeks, because he's helping people won't sell. Because the more people who sell, the, the quicker it's going to fall. And then p- other people who have been quietly selling the whole time, you know, they can't get out. In fact, the real Bitcoin experts are the guys that are no longer involved, right? They got in real early and they blew out during the mania. Now, of course, that's hard to do. I mean, a lot of people, you know, they get caught up in it and they and, and they don't blow out even if they got in early. Uh, but just being involved in, in, in Bitcoin doesn't make you an expert, right? I think if you're really an expert, you don't own it. If you're an expert, you understand that it's not going to work. You understand that it's not money, right? So these guys are not experts. They are just uh, Bitcoin shills, Bitcoin promoters. And so to bring these guys on, you know, after they've been so wrong about Bitcoin and just call them an expert again is more of a disservice to the CNBC audience. And I'm more of an expert than most of these guys, because at least I know enough to know that it's not going to work. But of course, CNBC doesn't have me on to tell people why Bitcoin is falling, because I'll tell them the truth. And if they bring me on and they say, Peter, is it a bottom? I said, not even close. We're still closer to the top than the bottom. You know, we've fallen about 80%. If you look at uh, 4,000 on Bitcoin, right, that's about an 80% decline in uh, the since its peak price. You know, if we fall another 80% from here, we're at 800. I mean, that's still, that's still high as far as I'm concerned. And I think we're going to fall another 80% quicker than we fell the last 80%. So we're much closer to the top as far as market cap uh, than we are to the bottom in all these cryptocurrencies. Uh, and but they don't you know, they don't want me causing a panic, although, you know, people probably won't even care, even if they had me on and they heard me say that because, you know, the true believers, I mean, they, you know, they couldn't care less uh, because they're they're going down with the ship. You know, we also got some news on existing home sales today, which was not, you know, 
a bad number relative to expectations. I thought it would have been a worse number. It was a 1.4% month-over-month increase. So, um, you know, it was pretty much expected. But year-over-year, the decline was 5.1%. So that's the biggest year-over-year drop uh, since sometime in 2014. So about four years. So the housing market is still weakening. And, you know, speaking about CNBC, Steve Leisman uh, came out, I think it was yesterday, and he was talking about the housing numbers. And he basically said, well, you know, of course, you know, uh, housing is going to go down. I mean, it's obvious that housing is going to take it on the chin uh, when the Fed raises rates because, you know, it's interest rate sensitive. And so this is no big deal. Now, first of all, if it's so obvious that they were going to take it on the chin, why didn't he say that uh, before they got hit? You know, why did he wait you know, until the housing market is you know, imploding to come out and say it was obvious? If it was obvious, he would have said it a long time ago. So maybe it was obvious to me, but I don't think it was obvious to Steve Leisman, although it's obvious now in hindsight, but I don't think it was obvious in foresight. Although what, one thing that he said, though, that I thought was really uh, reminiscent of 2006 and seven, is he said that, hey, but we don't have to worry about the housing market because it's a much smaller part of the economy than it was the last time. And so there's nothing to worry about. And that's a bunch of nonsense. Because A, even if it is a smaller part of the economy when it comes to the real estate industry, right, which is home building, uh, you know, uh, the, the realtors and stuff like that. I mean, there's a housing industry and you could take a look at what percentage of the GDP the housing industry is. And, you know, maybe is it a smaller component of GDP than it was? I, maybe a little bit. I don't know. Probably. Um, but that doesn't mean anything because that's not where the story ends. And if you remember, all the Fed guys were saying that. Janet Yellen, you know, when they all credited her for, for predicting the collapse, which, of course, she did not do. And I proved that uh, in some YouTube videos that I already did on Janet Yellen Exposed. And if you haven't seen those, you should check them out on YouTube. It's a complete farce, fraud that she forecast the crisis. She did not. She had no clue that there was a problem. She even admitted that herself. Uh, but, of course, she had no problem accepting the false flattery once uh, uh, Barack Obama nominated her. But Ben Bernanke said, hey, even if housing prices fall, don't worry. Housing is a small part of the economy. Janet Yellen said, even if housing prices unexpectedly decline, it won't cause a recession because housing is a small part of the economy. They are missing the big picture. Housing is a much bigger part of the economy than its contribution to GDP directly. And the reason is because homeowners, when house prices are rising, and homeowners are richer, they spend more money. They borrow more money. In fact, the house is an asset that can collateralize that debt. They refinance, they extract equity, and they spend it. And so when they go out and spend money that they borrowed against their house, that extra spending is not considered part of the housing component of GDP, but it is because it's housing that is enabling the spending. Now, when real estate prices are falling, homeowners are not as wealthy, so they they don't spend as much, and they certainly can't borrow anymore. In fact, they end up defaulting on a lot of their debts, including their mortgages. So 
That's why real estate is such an important part of the economy is because of the financial aspects of it. That's why the bursting of the housing bubble caused the financial crisis. It wasn't about real estate prices going down. It was about loans going bad. It was about homeowners not spending as much money on other things because their wealth was wiped out. In fact, again, the Fed even admitted that the purpose of quantitative easing was to create wealth in the housing market by lifting home prices, to create wealth in the stock market by lifting stock prices to engender more spending. Well, the Fed succeeded. They inflated bubbles and we took on more debt and spent money. But now they're raising interest rates, shrinking their balance sheet, and all that paper phony wealth is evaporating and all we've got left is the debt. And so if there was a positive wealth effect from real estate prices going up and that helps the economy, well, then there is a negative effect of real estate prices going down. It is going to hurt the economy. So Steve Leisman is just as wrong now as he was back then. He's making the same mistakes that the Fed made in underestimating how important home prices are to the overall bubble economy. I want to talk about some interesting news stories that I read today. One of them Again, ties in with Bitcoin and the cryptocurrencies. This is a company called Gigawatt, which is based in Washington state. And they raised $22.3 million last year in an ICO, initial coin offering. And they raised money to you know, build out the company. And what they do is they mine cryptocurrencies, but they also sell power to other cryptocurrency miners. Apparently, where they're located, they can produce power at a lower cost and Power is a very important part of the uh, crypto mining uh, process. Of course, not only do you need to get the power, but you need the equipment. That's why NVIDIA, one of the reasons that they're having problems is because the miners now are not buying as much stuff. And in fact, you know, I read an article today, I think it was up on Zero Heads, that showed uh, all these mining rigs, uh, you know, for sale on eBay because the miners don't need them anymore. And now they're trying to unload their equipment. Oh, and by the way, I uh, incorrectly referred to the chips that are being made uh, and sold to the miners as CPUs. Uh, they're actually GPUs. So I got the first letter wrong. A lot of people pointed that out who listened to the last podcast. Uh, so the GPUs and these uh, rigs that are up for sale, you know, it mentions uh, the, you know, this, you know, the chips that they have out there. So it's already starting, right? So now NVIDIA is going to have to compete uh, with the, uh, the, the, the used equipment uh, or some, in some cases, probably going to be brand new equipment, never even taken out of the box that's going to be up for sale. But so this company went public or raised money from the public in this ICO. Uh, and remember, I talked about uh, all the malinvestments that were taking place. You know, a lot of people, when they argued with me about why Bitcoin was going to succeed, they pointed out that, you know, all this capital was going into the industry, that all this infrastructure was being built up. And so therefore, Bitcoin was going to work because it had all this infrastructure behind it. And my argument was always that that infrastructure represents malinvestment. That is a classic part of every bubble, every credit bubble. I think von Mises coined the term malinvestment, but it's basically investments that shouldn't be made. They're not just bad investments. They are the consequence of the bubble. The uh, capital markets are confused. Uh, they make decisions based on 
bad economic signals. So you have a lot of people, there's this bubble in crypto, and they don't think it's a bubble. They think it's here to stay. And so they think these miners are, that are here today are going to be here five or 10 years from now. So they build up a business to sell power. And apparently, you know, you know, they can get cheaper power. So if you extrapolate all this mining into the future, then maybe they had a great business model based on these expectations of increasing demand for power uh, from an increasing number of uh, crypto miners. And of course, they were going to mine crypto too. But of course, if you're going to mine crypto, you have to assume that there's going to be future demand for the crypto that you mine. Because if nobody wants it, then it doesn't matter that you can mine them. You can't sell them. And so they have no value. So my point was that all this stuff was malinvestment. And once the crypto market collapsed, well, then there's no reason uh, for all the mining. None of these businesses need to be there. They're all going to go away. And so this company just filed for bankruptcy in Washington State. And one of the most interesting aspects of this is they listed as their total assets, $50,000. Now, they just raised $22.3 million late last year. Where is that money? They raised $22.3 million and there's only $50,000 in assets? I mean, (laughs) that's crazy. They have lots of debt. Their largest creditor is owed $70 million. Now, obviously, not only did they raise $22.3 million from a bunch of suckers uh, who got into the ICO, but then they found even bigger suckers to loan them all that money. And what's the collateral? They got 50000 in assets. I mean, they have no collateral. This is a massive bankruptcy. Of course, not only are they bankrupt, there's already lawyers getting involved, which, of course, I also talked about that a while ago, that there's going to be a lot of lawsuits. You know, the, lo- the losers here are going are gonna to lawyer up. I mean, you have investors that have lost a lot of money. Now, some of the investors are saying, oh, wait a minute, we were defrauded because this ICO was really a security and they, it wasn't registered. And so you sold unregistered securities, which, you know, they can certainly argue. But if the company is bankrupt, you know, what are the lawyers going to go after? Are they going to be able to pierce the corporate veil and go after uh, some of the individuals? Or maybe there are some parent companies that they can go after that might have some money. But there's going to be lots of lawsuits. This is not the first bankruptcy. There's going to be massive bankruptcies. They've already laid off a bunch of people. They reduced their staff from 63 to 13, right? So you have the liquidation of the assets. You have the layoff of workers who never should have been hired. Now, obviously, during the boom, they hired a bunch of people to do things that really weren't economically viable, but they thought they were based on the bubble. So these were malinvestments. These were hires that shouldn't have happened. But obviously that contributed to uh, the hiring that went on. And now it's going to contribute to the firing as a lot of these companies are going to be liquidated. But of course, there's going to be a lot more lawsuits too. Lots of people who lost money are going to be looking to sue. I mean, that's how it is in America. I mean, if you lose money, you look for somebody to blame. And so anybody who was involved in marketing these ICOs is going to get sued. In fact, I think a lot of the people, the big whales, to the extent that they can be identified, I think a lot of people who bought cryptocurrencies uh, and lost money are going to sue the people who made money. They're going to sue the people who sold them the cryptocurrencies. I don't know that the suits are going to be successful, but they're still going to get filed, right? Because people lost money. They're going to be upset. They're going to say there was manipulation. There was fraud. I mean, there's lots of lawyers out there, uh, you know, looking for business uh, and and they're going to be there. So you're going to, you're going to have bankruptcies. You're going to have lawyers uh, as people are pointing fingers. And of course the government's going to come in late to the party. Maybe there'll be some criminal prosecutions. Maybe we'll end up getting more regulation as a result of this. That's always what happens. 
happens whenever there's a bunch of people who lose money. The government comes in and takes advantage of uh, that uh, to increase the, the size of government and call for more regulation, supposedly, to protect investors. So I'm sure that is going to happen as a result. No, I also read an article about um, crypto hedge funds uh, closing down. I, I'm sure they're all going to close down. But one of the problems, particularly for these crypto hedge funds, is the way hedge funds work. Uh, they charge a management fee, typically 2%. And then they charge 20% of the profits. And a lot of them, the management fee just kind of covers their overhead. And, and so they need the incentive fee. That's where the real money is. Well, if a lot of these funds got started and they did get started, you know, later in 2017, early 2018, right? And people were putting all this money to work and buying up cryptos when Bitcoin was, you know, 15 to 20,000, right? And all these other coins were way up there. Well, now that they've collapsed, all these hedge funds are way underwater, right? They've lost 50, 60, 70, 80% of the money that was invested in the fund. And what does that mean? Well, that means now going forward, the 20% incentive fees aren't there anymore because there's something called the high watermark. You can't start charging the 20% until you get everybody back up to where they were, their capital accounts back up to where they were the last time you charged an incentive fee. So if you got a client that invested a million dollars in the fund and now his account is worth 200,000, you've got to take them from 200,000 to a million before you can start charging them. You have to get from a million to, let's say, a million one, and then you can take 20% of that 100,000 that exceeds a million. But it's a long way from 200,000 to a million. That's a huge return. And so what happens is a lot of these guys just close up shop, right? They send all their investors their money back because they don't want to work for free for the next, you know, who knows how many years it takes to go back uh, to, you know, your high watermark. So they shut down and then I'll know a year later or so they open up a brand new fund and they hit everybody up again so they can start from a clean slate. So if they make money, they can, they can actually get an incentive fee because if, if you're, your client who started with a million is down to a hundred thousand and you double his account in one year and he goes from a hundred thousand to 200,000, you get nothing. But if you can close down your fund and a year later, the guy is dumb enough to send you back the hundred thousand and then you turn it into 200,000. Well, then you can get 20% of that. So that's what a lot of these guys do. So a lot of these crypto funds are going to close down. And that's another reason that you're going to see a diminished demand for uh, the crypto assets, which is a big problem when you're running this kind of uh, pyramid scheme. You need more demand. And if the demand goes away because the hedge funds shut down, that just puts more downward pressure on the price because there's no one to buy as other people are trying to get out. But in a story unrelated to cryptocurrency, but certainly has a lesson for crypto investors, I read the unfortunate story of a hedge fund, optionsellers.com. Now, I don't know if that's the name of the fund or that's the name of his website or it's option sellers, but this guy operates a hedge fund. He has, I think, close to 300 clients. And his strategy has been to write naked options, calls and puts. And usually... Uh, writing naked options is a positive strategy because 90% of the options that are written expire worthless. And so if you sell those options and collect the premiums, you're going to make money. I mean, that's generally how it goes. That's why buying options is so risky because 90% of them expire worthless. Now, you can trade them and get in and out of them before they do, but if you buy an option and hold it to expiration, 
90% of the time, the option is going to be worth zero. So 100% of your investment is going to be lost. Now, who made the money? Whoever sold you the option. He took the premiums, put it in his pocket, and then you know the option expired worthless. But every once in a while, there's a big move, right? And then the option buyer gets a windfall. But the guy who sold the option takes a huge hit. And that's what happened uh, to optionsellers.com. When the uh, natural gas market exploded higher, and I mentioned that even as oil prices, crude oil prices were plunging, the cold winter, or not even winter yet, the cold fall in the Northeast or the Midwest sent natural gas prices soaring. And this guy had written naked call options. And his entire client book was wiped out. Every client he had lost 100% of the value of their account. But it actually is worse than that because the losses were so big on the naked call options when they had to you know, close out the positions. And I think he was using leverage to actually enhance the returns of his strategy. He ended up losing, I think the total losses were like $150 million, but that exceeded uh, the value of the hedge fund. And so now his clients, not only did they get wiped out, not only did they lose 100% of the money that they had in their accounts, but they owe the clearing firm more money. They are individually liable uh, as partners in the hedge fund uh, for the losses. I mean, I'm sure there was something in the agreement because the clearing firms don't want to allow uh, these hedge funds to speculate uh, and, and, you know, on, on their dime. So, you know, if there's a margin call that exceeds what you have, it can't just be that the clearing firm's only recourse is to the partnership itself. They have to be able to go to the individual partners if the money in the partnership is not adequate to cover their debit balances. So, you know, I don't know if they're going to actually file the suits and how if they're going to collect. But in theory, uh, all the investors, uh, not only do they lose everything, but they owe uh, a big check. And the lesson here is a very important one, and it's one that I talk about with my clients all the time. I try to explain that, and that is when you are involved in risky markets, which includes the stock market, right? you cannot count your chips while you're still sitting at the table. right? Don't talk to me about how much money you made doing something risky. Tell me how much money you made once you've cashed out and you're no longer exposed to that risk. Right, because there are people that probably had accounts with this guy, and I'm not sure what his track record is. I'm sure he had a, a good track record. I'm sure people had made a lot of money over the years uh, writing covered calls because it is a money making strategy. I mean, most of the time. So let's say somebody started with $250,000 with this guy. I think that was his minimum. I don't know. Uh, and let's say as of last week, uh, they had a half a million. So maybe over a five-year period, they doubled their money, and they think, hey, this is great. I doubled my money. And now they've lost everything. Not only did they lose the 250000 in profits, they lost the 250000 in principal, and they're on the hook for maybe another hundred grand that they owe the clearing firm. So the fact that they temporarily had a profit means nothing. That profit is gone, and so is their principal. And you know, so this guy, maybe they thought this guy was a hero. Well, what's he now? You know, I felt sorry for the guy because he, you know, he put out this YouTube video. You can watch it. And he's almost got tears in his eyes. He's sitting there and he's basically confessing that everything is lost and how badly he feels for his client. And, you know, I feel for the guy. I mean, I, I think he's sincere. I mean, I care about my clients, too. I mean, if I lost 100 percent of my money for my clients, I'd be I'd be you know, I'd be I feel pretty bad about it. 
And and so, yeah, you know, and there's going to be a lot of other advisors that are going to lose a lot of money for their clients. Maybe not everything like this guy. I mean, this is about as bad as it gets, uh, but it's going to happen. But the point is that the paper profits meant nothing. And that's what I tell my clients who want to tell me, well, Peter, if I'd have just been in the U.S. stock market the last five, six years, I'd have a lot more money. That's true. If you had invested with this guy over the last five or six years, you'd probably have had a lot more money, except not now. Now you've got no money right now. My accounts are way ahead of this guy's accounts. It didn't matter that he was beating me last week when he's lost everything this week. Right. And so the same thing is going to happen with the U.S. stock market, not as extreme, but a lot of the paper profits that people have. They're going to lose in the bear market. What they got in the bull market, they're going to lose in the bear market because they're not going to get out because they don't know it's a bear market. They're going to hold on and their advisors are going to tell them to hold on that you don't want to sell. You got to buy the dip. And so maybe they're going to buy more and they're going to lose. These profits are going to get wiped out. And I think I am going to make a tremendous amount of money because just like the paper Gains don't count until you take them. Neither do the paper losses. I mean, if you've got a bunch of gold stocks that are less than you paid for them, if you stay in this game and if the gold stocks do what I think they're going to do, they go up 10, 20 fold, those paper losses are going to mean nothing when you're sitting on these huge gains, as long as you realize them. I mean, you gotta, of course, you got to remember to take them. And I'm hoping that, you know, we will take them and I'll advise people to take them when the time is right. But, you know, these unrealized paper gains and losses ultimately are going to mean nothing if you're right or wrong in the final analysis. And so, you know, if a, one of my clients, you know, had an account with this guy and I don't know, maybe, maybe one of my clients did, I have no idea. But if I had a client who had an account with this guy and the guy could have said, you know, Peter, I had two accounts. I have one with you and I have one with, you know, optionsellers.com and, you know, your account has gone sideways and this option uh, seller's account has doubled. So I'm going to close out my account with you and I'm going to add the money to that account that's done so well. That's investing in the rear view mirror. Right now, not only did they, if they did that, not only did they lose all their profits in their original principal, but they lost all the money that they had with me. That's all gone now. And not only did they lose all that money, but now they've lost out on the potential to gain as my strategy really pays off. You know, the same thing happened with uh, the cryptocurrencies, with Bitcoin. And when it comes to, you know, investing by looking in the rearview mirror, when I had clients that were telling me they wanted to put their entire uh, brokerage account, their IRAs into uh, Bitcoin, you know, they would say, but Peter, if I had only had the money that I, that I sent to you, Five years ago, six years ago, if instead I had put that money in Bitcoin, I would have all this money today. I'd have so much money. And I would say, yes, that's true. But you never would have done it. You wouldn't have put this much money into Bitcoin back then because, again, people would have been too afraid. It's only with the benefit of hindsight. Once you know what's happened, it's easy to go back and say, yes, if I would have done this, I would have made all this money. Of course, but you wouldn't have done it. You wouldn't have done it in real time. You only look back and think of, hey, if I was stupid enough to put all this money in or crazy enough, yes, I would have made a fortune. Just like if I had bought the winning lottery ticket, once you know the numbers that won, you could say, gee, if I'd only bought those numbers, look how much money I would have. Yes. But I mean, what's the odds of you actually buying those numbers when you don't know what the numbers are? Once you know the numbers, yeah, if you only had played those numbers. But the problem is you don't know that stuff without the benefit of hindsight. But if clients said, oh, I would have made all this money had I only put the money in Bitcoin instead of sending it to Europe Pacific Capital. Well, it doesn't mean that you take the money now. 
and take that money and buy Bitcoin at the current price because anybody who did that, anybody who had that mentality a year ago, and so they took their money like clients wanted to do out of their Euro Pacific Capital accounts and bought Bitcoin, well, now they've lost 70, 80% of their money. Clearly, they would have been much better off leaving their money at Euro Pacific, but they were investing in that rearview mirror. They were just looking at what happened in the past and assuming it would continue into the future. But that doesn't happen. You have to invest looking forward. You have to invest based on the information you have at the time. And putting that much money into Bitcoin at the time, given what we knew, would have been a highly risky thing to do with your retirement account. If you were going to do it at all, you can gamble with some play money. But putting that kind of money in now, after the market had already gone parabolic, that is a completely crazy thing to do, yet people actually wanted to do it. That's how the mentality of the greed, of the FOMO. It's euphoric in a bubble. And that's why, if you remember back at that time, I was pretty convinced that what we were seeing at the end of 2017 was, in fact, the manic stage, the blow-off top of what I call probably the biggest bubble ever. It was, it was not just uh, tulip mania. It was bigger than tulip mania, right? A lot of people had some huge gains in Bitcoin, they don't have those gains anymore. I mean, some people still have gains that, that got in really early, uh, but a lot of people, far more people, got in late, and they don't have the gains anymore. I mean, if someone bought Bitcoin at 10000 when it was at 20000 they felt real good. I've already doubled my money. Well, now it's at you know 4000 ish Well, they've lost half their money. And, of course, a lot of the people, I mentioned it, who got into Bitcoin early on with their play money, once it moved up a lot and they felt more confident because of the market, they've committed you know, larger sums of money at higher prices. And so their average price is much higher. Even though they have some prices, some coins that they bought really low, uh, they have other coins. And of course, like I mentioned, I had clients, clients of mine, who wanted to put their entire accounts, I'm talking IRA accounts, into Bitcoin. Not when Bitcoin was $5, $10, or even $1,000, but when it was $10,000, $15,000. And I had to talk these people out of it. Now, I didn't have that many clients, maybe about a dozen of them who wanted to do that. And I'm pretty sure I succeeded in almost every case in stopping people uh, from making that mistake. And, you know, I don't think anybody has called to thank me, but that's fine. I mean, that's that's what I do for a living. That's I'm glad I'm able to do that to stop people uh, from making uh, mistakes. Uh, but. The people didn't want to do that. Nobody called me to do that, to put their entire IRA into Bitcoin when it was really cheap because nobody would do that, right? When Bitcoin really started, people were willing to throw their play money at it, but people didn't want to put their retirement money into Bitcoin because why? They were afraid that it would go down. It was like, I don't know if it's going to work. Maybe it's going to crash. I don't want to put any real money into, into, into this thing, but yeah, I'll throw a little money in there just in case, right? I mean, I wish I had done that. I mean, one of the reasons I didn't do that is I wasn't going to put any real money in it. Uh, and I thought it, was, it wasn't even worth the effort to put just a little play money in. Of course, I had no idea at the beginning that, you know, how high the thing would go because even a small amount of money turned into a huge amount of money. Even if you sell now, if you got in at two, three, four, ten dollars $10 of Bitcoin, you could sell right now and still make a fortune, you know, if, as long as you didn't buy more at, at higher prices. So I, I had no idea at the beginning that the bubble would ever get this big. Uh, before it popped. But most people that invested early on, they invested small amounts of money because they were afraid of losing. But what happened as prices got up, it wasn't about the fear of losing. It was about the fear of missing out, right? The FOMO, fear of missing out. 
That's just another name for greed. Those are the emotions that drive the markets. Initially, you're afraid to invest because you don't want to lose money. And then you're so greedy, you want to put everything in. And so that what was going on. But nobody was putting that big money in uh, at the beginning. I mean, maybe there were a few people, really rich people, that put in big money. But it wasn't big relative to their overall net worth. But I think a lot of people put in huge amounts of money, maybe their entire net worths, when the prices of Bitcoin were above $10,000. Now, you know, if you, you know, had $100,000 worth of Bitcoin that you paid 500 bucks for and and now it collapses. Even if it goes down to zero and you've lost your entire 500 bucks that you started with and you you never cashed out, right? You wrote it up and then you wrote it all the way down and went 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 down with the ship. I mean, at the end of the day, you only lost 500 bucks, right? I mean, easy come easy go. I mean, it was a windfall. You decided not to cash in on the windfall, but you lost money you never really had. So, yes, uh, psychologically, it could do some damage. But reality is you only lost 500 bucks. But if you put 100000 into Bitcoin, you know, at a high price and then the market collapsed, that's a huge loss for you. You didn't lose money that came easy. You lost money that came hard. I mean, if you spent years and years, you know, saving money, working and saving money, real money. Right, that you could have spent, but you saved it and you could have invested it. And then you put it into Bitcoin and then the price collapsed and you lost that money. That is a much bigger deal. Right. That's not easy come, easy go. That was it was very hard to come and it evaporated. And so, again, that's where the, the lesson comes in about looking in the rearview mirror. And it doesn't matter. It's just like this option sellers dot com. Clients made a lot of money until they blew it all up. Because they were taking risks. They didn't appreciate how bad the risks were until after the fact. And then it was too late. And there are a lot of people in the U.S. stock market, U.S. bond market. They're taking tremendous risks. They're just not going to realize it until it's too late. And the same thing with people in the cryptocurrency market. They took enormous risks buying. Some got lucky or they were smart enough to get out either way. But a lot of people are going to be left holding the bag. They're going to end up getting wiped out. And as I said earlier, they're going to be looking for villains. They're going to be looking for people to sue. And the politicians, of course, are going to hear all this and see this as an opportunity to show how sympathetic they are, to get the votes of some of the people who lost their money, and then to grow government, which is one of the things I said all along was going to be one of the most unfortunate uh, consequences of Bitcoin. Because the libertarians that got in early, the idea was this is going to take power away from government. This is going to help take down the, the fiat currencies. Instead, it is going to produce the opposite. Bitcoin is going to make the dollar look good by comparison because the, the cryptocurrencies are going to crash before the fiat currencies. So if anything, it's going to help the government tell people, you see, the private market doesn't work. Privately created currencies don't work. Stick with the good old dollar or the euro or the yen, right? The central bankers create a much better product than the private sector. When the real product created by the private sector is gold. Right. That's the real product that the central bankers don't want you to buy. They were happy to have everybody buy cryptocurrencies because they knew in the end they'd get wiped out and then they would look good by comparison and say, hey, you see, see what happens when you trust the free market. Uh, they, you end up getting scammed and you lose all your money. They don't want people buying gold because gold is real money that was created by the free market. And it is infinitely better uh, than the fiat currencies created by government or the crypto, the fiat cryptocurrencies created recently. By the, uh, by the private sector. And of course, the other irony 
is that because of all the losses that are going to be felt by all the people who invested in cryptocurrencies, the government is going to come out with more regulations and, and that is going to limit freedom. So we are going to have more government, not less government, as a result of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. So instead of taking down government, right, all the Bitcoiners ended up helping to aid the government in increasing their power because of the, the backlash that is going to result from the losses that people are going to have because they put their faith in fool's gold.